This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, so, good afternoon, everybody. And Yashakoyach to everyone for coming and, and joining us. Um, it's, I found it to be very uplifting summers, Baruch Hashem, and it's thanks to everybody that's here on the trip. A special thanks to Yaakov for everything. And if Yaakov seems a little too strict to you, it's his job. So don't take it personally. He, he doesn't mean it personally, Yaakov. Um, yes, he does. Well, he does. Okay. When he says he's going to be very upset, it's professional. It's not, it's not personal. Um, a big ashakayach to uh, Ellie. This is the third year here in Baruch Hashem. Very, very special. And uh, a special Yashakoyach to three people, two of them are not here. Tzviki is with us. They've put in an incredible amount of time, a really incredible amount of time to make this happen, including the booklets that you see here. He did the physical work. Um, so I'd like to speak a little. What? Who's the other person? Now. I would like to. No, there is a microphone. It's recorded. I like it better. I don't like the mic. So if, 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 you, have a hard, if you have a hard time hearing this, seat here. Okay. Um, the, I wanted to give a little bit of introduction about Poland and Polish Jewry. And I think it's important to understand the context of what we're going to be seeing. Um, he's here? Yeah, here he Okay. Sorry. Yes, okay. Sorry about you. Have, you got your stuff or just the, the hand? We're waiting for someone special. Mr. Mensch, how are you? We made it for the only Mensch on the, on the tour that we made it for. Um, I will, uh, um, Ellie will speak more in detail about specific things. And I'd like to speak about a few topics. And one is introduction about Poland and Polish Jewry. Now, we always said that countries in Europe were arbitrary designations. They came and they went. And that's why a lot of history, people say Poland, Lithuania, Hungary, uh, Ukraine, it varied in different times. And they were not always the same. The same city was in five different places. So first, let's sketch a brief history of Poland as a nation and special emphasis on two or three points and then the Jewish community and it'll help understand the different three or four major nekudas we want, we want to engage in. Poland itself, like every other place else in Europe, started with tribes roaming around, killing each other, settling, settling, killing and so on. Slowly it, it, it began to become a country. Now you need to remember that in those days, a country was too big to really efficiently manage. Um, so you had the noblemen who had a manageable area. You had a king who they appointed, took on themselves. And in various kufis, they had different arrangements of how powerful one was over the other. And for the Jews, it made a big difference because sometimes they could plead to the king against a nobleman and sometimes the nobleman against the king. Everyone had their own interests. 
Poland is officially considered to have started in the late 900s, like 996, I think, when the king converted to Catholicism. It's a unique country in the area because most of the other countries are Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, but they are, and Catholicism became a state religion. The state identifies entirely with Catholicism. It also meant when, when, when the Catholic Church felt threatened, the Jews were the ones who were threatened in turn. So that played an important role. The country slogged on, and the, in the end of the 1300s, the Polish king did a shidduch with the Lithuanian queen, and they became sort of a federation of two countries under one monarchy. Until at the end, until the 1600s, when they actually became one country, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and that state of affairs lasted also for about 100 years, and then in the 1700s it fell apart, and that was the end of it. The, um, the, so in the 1500s and 1600s, Poland slash Lithuania were an extremely powerful country in Europe. They were the country in Europe. That slowly began to become to an end. Poland has neighbors, Russia, Germany, Austria-Hungary. The question always in Europe was, who is going to have who for lunch? If somebody was having somebody for lunch, the question was who for who? At the end of the seven, as, the, as Poland began to fall apart, so Russia nibbled, Prussia, which was Germany, nibbled, Austria-Hungary nibbled. They began slicing up Poland, and till 1792, I think, Poland ceased to exist. They, it had become a third swallowed by Russia, a third by Austria-Hungary, and a third by um, Germany. In 1805, Napoleon arrives. In 1815, there was a famous Vienna Congress, which, which made, it was one of the first diplomatic conventions where they tried to get together and work out things. The main, the main issue was nobody should be too powerful, and they split up Poland officially. And you had the part that went to Germany, the part that went to Austria-Hungary, which was Galicia, a lot of Galicia, and so on. And there was a small part which was an autonomous entity under the Russian Tsar. And that's why when you hear all the stories, this is from 1815 until 1918. So all the stories about people in Poland speaking about the Russian Tsar, that's what it was. Poland was an entity, and that part of Poland was called Congress Poland. And when people tell you we're from Congress Poland, it was the main section of Poland, and it was an autonomous country, but really was ruled, it, it was ruled by Russia. That was, so when you hear the stories about Poland and the Rebbe's, in times of the Rebbe's and so on, the Tsar is the important person because he was the boss of it all. In 1918, World War I, at the end of World War I, the winning, the Allies decided that a, they dismembered Germany and Austria-Hungary, that was part of it. Russia had its revolution, so it had its own Tsarist. And the winning powers decided two things. First of all, they wanted to make sure that Germany and Austria-Hungary don't have any more power, so they stripped them of everything they ever owned. 
And they also felt that the problems in Europe are because there are too many nations and peoples that don't have self-expression. So minority rights became very important. So Poland gained independence in 1918. And one of the, one of the things that was, that was um, written into its enforced constitution was that minorities have their rights. Ukrainians um, and, 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 and Catholics, all sorts of people, and Jews included. Um, that was 1918. It also, this, 1918 brought out a hundred plus years of bitterness towards, it, it brought a very powerful national sense of Poland. We, the Polish people, have been given the raw deal for, for, from everybody, including our Jews. And they were very patriotic, very nationalistic. And, and the Jews, as a people who would not assimilate, who were, who were very large, they were 10% of the population, easy, and, and, go, and, and increasing, they wanted them desperately out. And that's why you had Xeris and Xeris and Xeris. Um, in 19, at, at the end of World War II, 90% or 85% of, of Polish Jewry was destroyed. The rest realized they have nothing to look for. It became communist, uh, you know, right after the war, and not much Jewish history afterwards. But that was the history of Poland in the big. So we have a Tkufa when it's forming as a Catholic, um, a, a Catholic monarchy and slowly beginning to become a, a big power. We have at the 1500s, the 16, early 1600s, where it's actually a very powerful country and it's the country. Then we have its slow demise and being eaten up by its neighbors. We have a hundred years of suffering as a, a oppressed, repressed people. And it's a very, very sharp, sharply nationalistic, type of, of state from 1918 onwards, and then in communism. That's their story. Our story is that the Jews lived mostly in France and Germany. That's what, what, this is the Europe we lived in. Germany became increasingly horrible to live in. Pogromin, one after the other, Rindfleisch, Lederam, on and on. There were a lot of, lot of pogroms, Xeris, tossing people out. And they began moving eastwards towards Poland. And in general, Poland was quite unsettled. There was a lot of, it was kind of open. The Polish king was interested in having the Jews because the Jews, the Poland itself was backwards. It was peasant backwards agriculture. Jews were Seichrim, Balam Lacha, and it became a very, very convenient arrangement. Like always, Jews had special rights, protections, and so on and so forth. This was forming slowly over those 1300s, 1400s. At the beginning of the 1500s, till the middle of the 1600s, the most vibrant tourist center in the world was Poland. It meant you had um, all the important people in the back, on, on the Shoharuch and the back of the Gemara, they were from Poland, usually Lublin or Krakow or, the, or that area. So, so whether you're talking about the Shach, the Taz, the Sma, the Marshal, the Maram, the Marshal, 
the, the order is a little bit um, a little bit different uh, chronologically, but but that's what everybody who was anybody was from here. And this was the early acronym Torah Center and the early postkin, the SMA. Everybody was from this area. And this became a Torah Center. Economic life was good and things were really blossoming here in terms of Torah. We'll speak more about it. Now, there was something happening. As the country was coalescing, the Jews were more and more pain in the neck and less desirable because they were they, they had they controlled their finances and that and there was a lot of push and the most convenient place to push them to was since Russia and Poland had become one country so what happened was Ukraine a big chunk of Ukraine became part of it Lithuania I think owned it and they, 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 they didn't do anything with it the Polish nobles acquired huge estates in Ukraine they enslaved Ukrainians as serfs, and the Jews became the managers of those estates. So you had a migration westwards, or eastwards towards Ukraine, the Jews becoming quite prosperous as running different types of, of estates and so on, and, um, and life seemed to be good. The Ukrainians were extremely upset, as you would expect somebody who became slaves. The Polish noblemen lived in Poland. They were quite far away, they didn't see him. The Jew was the one who collected the rent, the one who, who, who forced them to pay the taxes. He was the one who sold them, sold them whiskey to make them drunk and so on. And it exploded in 1648 with, with the largest catastrophe Kaiserswald had known since the Chorben Bias. Maybe the Inquisition, most people killed in Xeros Tach It decimated, destroyed, completely obliterated communities, everything. It, it, there was um, uh, uh, a Russian named Chmelnitsky, Bogdan Chmelnitsky. He himself had been wronged by Polish noblemen. Not, you know, I don't know if he was a big Tsarist start with, but the, the, level of, the level of havoc that they wreaked on the communities was incredible. We'll speak about it at some separate time. That marks the end of a great period for us here. After that, in the wake of that, it's like aftershocks in an earthquake. You had Shapsitzvi gained a foothold here, even though it didn't start here, but people liked it. There was a native false messiah called Frank, who was horrible, and Basically, it's sunk into a certain level of doldrums. In the 1700s is when Hasidus started. And at that point, Hasidus took hold. It started in Ukraine, but it took strong hold in Poland. The first group of Hasidim, Rebelemelech and so on, were very similar to other Hasidim. But then Poland developed its own unique Hasidus, which became Ger. It was Pshischa, um, Kotsk, Ger, which was a very different brand of Hasidus. We'll talk about that also. So from the 1700s, as you go into the 1800s, two things are happening. One is, there is no more um, unaffiliated Torah in, in Poland. People are beginning to become not from. Um, the, 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 the Hasidus is gaining a foothold 
and anyone who is from is 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 now belongs to Hasidim. And this was the state of affairs here until World War One. Between World War One to World War Two, even though it's only 20 years about, 22 years, there were so many problems because of the intense national fervor, the desire to limit the Jews to the point where they were choked out, um, it created a tremendous um, drive towards communism, socialism, Zionism, um, and Orthodox Jewry um, was um, on the defensive. The numbers were, were incredible how, how much they galloped down. And, and then World War II came and destroyed 85% uh, of, of, of it, and that was the end of it. So Polish Jewry has in itself three very important periods. It has the period when it was the Torah center, and most of the post-Gim and, and early Mefarshim we have on the Gemara is from Poland. We then have the Gzeris Tachvetat. We then have the, 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 the rise of Hasidus to the point where nothing existed from except Hasidus, and its own unique development of a unique brand called Polish Hasidus. And finally, um, at, we, we, we end off with that terrible Tkufa after the war, where even Hasidim fell apart, and it was partially saved by two modern inventions. Two modern, modern inventions saved the remnants of Polish Jewry. One modern invention is Beis Yaakov. For those of you who think Beis Yaakov is old-fashioned, it was revolutionary. Two, Yachel, Yechachmen Lublin Yeshiva. It's not that it had such intense hashpa as much as the mindset and the understanding of change that's needed. That is sort of an overview of the different nikudas that, that we'll over time speak about. There's one more important thing that comes into play over here, and that's called Vad Arba Ratzos. Vad Hea Ratzos, Arba Ratzos, Gimla Ratzos. It was the first time that jury had a pan-communal, a pan-communal assemblage, for many reasons. In the in the in the in the 1500s, they formed a group of rabbanim from all over Poland, and it was five countries: big Poland, little Poland, Volin, Podolia, different countries. Sometimes Lithuania, and then Lithuania broke away. Litvaks were always never easy to live with. They broke away, did their own thing. They had their own Vararets. But this was a group that would be a precursor to Aguda in a way. It was a group of Rabbanim that met twice a year at the great fair in Lublin mostly, and then Yaroslav. They would make Takonis, Paskim Shailas, put people to Cherem, take him out of Cherem as needed. And, and, and in generally, and there was a lot of um, late involvement of collecting taxes and so on. This is a phenomenon unparalleled, and this lasted until the government put a stop to it in the 1700s. So this is another phenomenon that we want to talk about more at some later point. So basically, we, we, we have over here um, the Vad Abarots, as we like to speak about at some point. We'd like to talk about Xeris Tach Vetat. We'd like to speak about Polish Hasidus. Beis Yaakov movement and Yachol. Those are um, those are specific areas that have 
a much greater impact than just Beshait of Ismanik. In this Beis Akvaris here, it's one of the great Beis Akvaris, and Ellie will, will tell you a lot about it. But I want to make note of one person who, who fits into the story. There's a caver of the Teferish, of the, no, Chem de Shlomo. Chem de Shlomo was a Rav in the early 1800s in Warsaw. He, he was neither, he was against Hasidim and against Maskilim. So he escaped from a town, he, he was a Rav in a town where, um, where the Hasidim basically took over the town and put him out of business. He didn't want to go back to Pozna because Maskilim had put, he, he felt it would be a terrible person his kids. He came to Warsaw and he ended up fighting everybody because Warsaw, you either were not from or Hasid. There was no room for an independent Rav. And so he represents in many ways the end of a Tkufa, a certain tragedy. Um, and, 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 you know, in his, his, his firm, his safe, his, 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 his used the yeshiva world. His, his learning had a lomdash of flavor to it that sits well with today's learning. But he himself, he had no constituency left because there's nobody left. You find many other gedolim buried in Warsaw because what happened was when people were sick, they came to Warsaw to the big doctors. Don't try them. But, 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 but in those days, it was one of those things that came to an end. So the, the, the medicine is still at the, at the, at the 1800 level. So they, they still use leeches and stuff. But, but at any rate, so you have gedolim who came here you have Gedolim who came to the, there were, there were resort areas of Tvats, other places which were close by, and when they were Nifta, they would, they would be brought here. There was also a large enough community, so when people escaped during, during World War I, they, some ended up here. So the two most notable ones, like off the top of the head in the Beis Akvaris, is going to be Reb Chaim Briska, who, who ended up here, you know, in, in that Kufa. And you had the Nitziv. Um, both of them ended up here because it was a big city, and for whatever reason, this was a place to be. Um, the Nitziv we spoke about when we did the literature, um, and basically the Nitziv was the main, he, 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 he lived Volozhin's main Tkufa, and he closed Volozhin, and he died a broken person after it was closed, his life fell apart basically, and he ended up here, the Nitziv. And Reb Chaim Briska also was after the war, and basically, this is where he ended up, and, and that's why, and he's buried next to the Nitziv, who was, who was his grandfather-in-law. He married the Nitziv's granddaughter, and, and, that, and, you know, and, and that's where he ended up. But I'll call upon him, um, the, the story of Poland itself is an, is an incredible story of many different, uh, different elements interplaying. And the thing we mentioned in the literature was, between World War I to World War II, most of what we call litter was under the Polish government. If you take a look, the Mi Yeshiva was technically in Poland, so White Russia was mostly in Poland. It, had, it wasn't part of the Polish culture that we're talking about. And Vilna was in Poland, and it's certainly not part of this culture. But at any rate, so when people talk about Poland, they will also, if you look at the Mi Yeshiva stationary in those years, it's Polish. But, but that's all um, a technical, because you know, they, they had split up the countries, they that gobbled up part of it, but Tachlis, the most of Poland is Krakow, Lublin, and later on Warsaw. Krakow, Lublin were the two early cities, and, and Warsaw was a later city in terms of, of Yiddish development. 
Okay, Rep Ellie, you 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 can. What? Okay. Any questions? We have a few minutes. Yes. So the isms those started like in the 1800s. The isms started in the 1700s. Poland was a little backwards, so it moved in later. But what's interesting was the form it took. Russian and 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 Russian and Lithuanian maskilim were into Hebrew. They were Hebraists. Um, Poland tended to be either Yiddishist or Polish. There was a, enough of a, a of a movement to become integrated in Polish culture. Lithuania had no culture. I hate to say it as a Litvak, but the, it, it was not. The, Poland had culture to it, so there were there was a group of assimilationists. There were um, also very strong socialists because life was so hard and oppressive. You had these big factories and large socialism and communism got a foothold here much more than other places. And you could be a little more observant, less observant. But at the end of the day, the Marshal, who was one of those great people in, in, in that coup for the 1500s, 1600, writes against mixed dancing. So something was going on good, you know, something was happening you know, fun. I don't, you know, he writes about, about the frivolous nature and the mixed dancing. So anyone who tells you about the new things, it, it, you know, so people were Schutz, they were Schutz without a name. There was, you were, you were Shagets because you were Shagets, not because you had a specific sheet. Um, in, 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 and in, in many ways, it, it, we'll, when we speak about Schneeren and the Besiaku movement, we'll talk about the, the social aspect of when something becomes a runaway cultural movement, how much it schleps in other people. Much more, if a guy, if a guy tried, is not from, because he's from, so okay, you know, kind of uh, go off the... After, after Tachlatat, where did the terror move to? That's when it went to Lithuania? To... I think so. It was more the doldrums. And I don't know, I, it's hard for me to think of uh, many exciting names. Exciting names started in the 1700s. Right. So, so you had a lull of, of things. It, it, I, I have a hard time recalling any specific big thing. In the 1700s, you start having the Vilnagoy and you have Chesidas, you have your Berkham Emden, you have your Saibishits, you have your Ktsai Swat. Yeah. The Aragola, you said. What? The Aragola. The Aragola was a great great grandfather of. Uh, it was it was a, a, a progenitor of the um, of the of the Goyen, and and the Goyen's style was similar to Aragola. You know this this finding Maramikomos. He was um, a, a, a uh, you know a pre a pre. Uh, so the early yeshivas, correct? The early yeshivas were founded by. Well, I, I'd like to talk about it more. That that kufa in itself. The, the two people, the two or three people, instrumental was Rabbi Yaakov Palak. He's the first recognized large in life Torah figure, and he had a, a yeshiva. And we have Rabbi Shalom Shachna, um, his Talmud of his. We have the Marshal, who was a Barplukta of, of Shalom Shachna, and and that that was the beginning of that era of that big Torah era in in, in Poland. I, I, I mean, again, I probably would like to speak about it specifically because it's it's his own um, you know unique Tkufa. What? Um. 
No, no, there's never as a matter when everybody was part of it. There were people who stayed away from it because of the Besiaka movement, actually. Um, Belzerov was very ambivalent later about the Besiaka movement, and that's kept him from being. It was the Gera Rebbe who, who basically stepped in about, you know, to become part of Agudah, and that really, between him and the German Jews, that's really the backbone of Agudah. Everyone else either stepped stepped in line or was ambivalent about it. Um, that, that was. The, I'm sorry. Hungarian Jews. The Hungarian Jews were. They had their own. They had their own politics. We spoke about last year about. They had a, an Agudas Rabbanim in Hungary. They had a Lishkas Rabbanim, and there was ambivalence about joining it. Not to see them stayed out of it. Not, not, the, not the political canals, they just didn't want to be told what to do. So, so Hungary was much more distant. This, you know, you're, those days you didn't travel that easily. So, so the, the main, if you ask ourselves what is the mainstay of it, it was the fact that Gerebe, German Askonim, Reb Chaim Moise, and Reb Chavetz Chaim were the backbone of it. That, that's, that gave Aguda its backbone. Um, they were the ones who were firmly behind it and, and, and put it together. You know, that, that's, that caused it to, to exist, actually.